about the Ten Commandments. So just as we're starting Advent, we're coming to the end of this series. We're going to be on the Tenth Commandment this morning. And uh, two things that we've, that we've come back to again and again as we've looked at the commandments is that it's not enough to look at these and just say, all right, now here's, here's the requirement. You know, it's, just, it's right there in black and white. So just, so just do that. Um, don't, don't use God's name as a cuss word. No, do that. And, uh, you know, don't, don't lie. Go do that. Yes, I mean, the commands are commands, and they are about behaviors. But there are, there are bigger things at stake, and it's actually the Bible that draws that out, especially in the New Testament. And a couple of things we looked at have been this. Number one, Jesus comes along. This is at the beginning of His ministry. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. At the beginning of his public ministry, he says, right, you know, cards on the table, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Yeah, I, I'm not coming to negate what went before me. And in fact, and he raises the ante to say, I didn't come to abolish them, I came to fulfill them. And what that means is if you look at the law, especially the Ten Commandments is really like the, the core of the law. If you look at that, and you're not finding in that something about Christ and what He's about and what He came to do, then you're not getting at what the law is about. He fulfills it. He's not something we tack on as a caboose at the end to say, oh yeah, and believe in Jesus. But the other thing is this, is that the New Testament says that the law, it's, it's actually a verse that's hard to translate. Some, some translations say that it's like a tutor or it's like a guardian. But, but, but the image is this, that the law is like an authority figure who comes alongside a pupil and leads the pupil to Christ. Meaning, the law does something painful on the front end. It finds us out. And the metaphor in the Bible is that it's a mirror. And as I've said before, it's not like the mirror in your bathroom where maybe you like the light and you go, okay, I, I, you know, I don't look that bad. It's, it's, it's like the department store, harsh overhead light, full-length mirror. Here's the deal of how you actually look. And, and that's hard, but the beautiful thing is this. Is it showing you, do you see why you need Christ? Do you see why you need Christ? If you think you're beautiful, you will not feel your need for Him. But if you see the actual condition, there's good news, and it leads you to Him. Now, as we end this last command, think about this as we're thinking about you know, that, that mirror, that metaphor, is that the first commandment and the last commandment are very similar. I mean, these commandments are brilliant. If I can put it that way, they're brilliant. Because the first commandment and the last commandment deal with things that are unseen. First commandment, have no other gods before me. You can have a visible idol, but really where that starts is inside where no one can see. And so does the last one. And as we look at this, think about, it's not just saying that don't go out there and tell lies. And don't go out there and embarrass me, you know, Israelites, by using my name as a cuss word. And don't steal other people's stuff. That would all be obvious. But he says this, I want you to do something that you could be doing and I'd be the only one who could see it. You know, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart.
the last commandment deals with the unseen because the unseen affects everything else. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Then in the New Testament, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us to hear. We ask that our hearts would be good soil this morning for the good seed of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Almost a year ago, I guess it would be at the beginning of this year, I had a couple of Sundays off after Christmas. And uh, it's fun when I'm I'm out for a Sunday to visit different churches in Greenville. And uh, we've, we've visited a pretty good variety. And... Uh, after after Christmas last year, my family visited a church, and it was one with a lot more kind of the multimedia and screens and that kind of thing. And the preacher did something brilliant on the front end of the sermon. He superimposed two pictures, right? Maybe not superimposed, but he, he juxtaposed them. He showed them back to back. He said, I want to show you two pictures. The first picture, uh, he didn't name the country, but it was somewhere impoverished. I mean, you can just tell this is, this is a desperate setting. And it was a photograph of a truck delivering food and supplies. And the photograph was from the vantage point of right outside the back of the truck so that you could see people's faces coming to it. And there's a mob around the back of the truck, and the looks on the faces are looks of desperation. No one is smiling. Uh, you know, brows are furrowed. Now, that was the first picture. And it's obviously outside the United States. The second photograph was a picture taken from a similar position beside the door of a mall the morning of Black Friday. <laughs> and the reason it was so brilliant is that the expression... I mean, it was just all there to see. The expressions were the same. 
that the, this, is the, you know, this is the beginning of the shopping season and you've got all the you know, decorations. No smiles, no laughing, furrowed brows, serious expressions. And, you know, after he showed it, it was almost like he could have closed in prayer. Like, you know, the end. That there's a wanting that is so, that can be so desperate that it's telling us something about ourselves. There is a wanting that is so desperate that it, it should be telling us something about ourselves. That is what God goes after in the last of the Ten Commandments. And again, this is, it manifests itself in things that are seen by others. It does manifest itself on the outside, but the real going on is unseen. And God goes there with the last commandment, in a sense to say, are you a good person? Are you a good person and you don't need any mercy? You don't need any washing. You don't need redemption. Then just do this. Just let all your wants be appropriate. Don't want what you can't have or don't have. Amazing. Now, what I want to look at this morning is this. Is first just the nature of coveting. What, what is coveting? But I want to look at this just as much. Is What is the wanting beneath coveting? So what's the nature of coveting? But what's the wanting that's up underneath coveting? All right. First off, the nature of coveting. What is it? It's a coin with two ugly sides. I mean, now it, it, it's a, it, the coin is a wanting coin. But what are the two ugly sides? One side is you have it. You have it. And then what's the other side? And I don't. And what is the implication? I should, and you shouldn't. Now, when you bump into this inside of yourself, uh, what's easy to do is, is to think that coveting or this kind of wanting, that it's like a fire. And that getting, you know, securing the thing that I want will be like water that will put out my fire. And the thing is, that's, that's sort of how we deceive ourselves with any kind of lust, or any kind of inordinate desire. We think about it like, it's like a fire. If I'll just secure the thing, it'll put it out and it'll go away. Totally wrong. It's not a fire. It's a dashboard light. You know, when a light goes off on your dashboard, the car might sound exactly the way it always has. But what is the light saying? You're about to be in trouble. I, the car, if it, was, if it was a person, is saying, I have sensed something that you have not sensed. And if you don't deal with it, you're going you're gonna to regret it. It's going to do something bigger than you think. And you look at, okay, you look at the language. This is, I, it, again, I, I, I don't mean this irreverently or, or to belittle the commandment to say that it's, br- it's brilliant how God knows us more than we know ourselves. When you read the language of this commandment, it's talking about don't covet, you know, an ox or a servant, you know, and it sounds just kind of quaint and Old Testament-ish, like, oh boy, I wish I had that mule. What a great mule. 
uh, you know, it just very detached and kind of agricultural. But then you pull back and go, okay, now wait a minute. What did God say? The first thing He says is this, do not covet your neighbor's house. Now again, what is the context for the, the Ten Commandments? Where are they? They are in the wilderness. The Israelites just left Egypt. They are starting out this nomadic existence that they're going to be in for 40 years. They are tent dwellers. They don't have their own acres yet, and they don't have their own homes. And God, 40 years out, is already saying, I know you. I know you. You are going to make it across, at least your children are, They're going to make it in and you're either going to build your own homes or you're going to inhabit Canaanite homes. And you who had no homes, who maybe are living in a home that you did not build and benefiting from a vineyard that you did not plant, you're going to live in that home and then you're going to look at your neighbor. And you're going to begin comparing. And do you see how insightful this is? That's the first one. And then what's the next one? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not look at your neighbor's spouse and say, you know, if I had her, if I had him, I would not have to deal with this. And how did, how did he get that? How did she get that? When I have so much to bear anyway, and then this, and then this marriage just makes it more difficult. Do not do that. And then he does start listing the real Old Testament sounding things like, you know, their fields and ox and the servants and things like that. What is that? What was an ox? It was a capital generating machine. It was how you built possessions and wealth and harnessed the potential of a field. It's how you built capital. You pull back and you look at this very Old Testament sounding language and you go, okay, what did God just hit on? You want to be happy through things. You want to be happy through a house and the possessions in that house. You want to be happy in romance and a significant other. You want to be happy in work and success and achievement. And you are going to look at your neighbor with needy eyes, and it's going to sabotage the love that is supposed to be between you and your neighbor. Remember, these last commands are about loving your neighbor, and that's who the commandment talks about. Now, when we hear this, the tendency is to think, you know what, that's right, I don't like the sound of that, it is ugly, and what we've got to do is to be content with what we have, is to realize that we don't just have enough, we have more than enough, And that's how we should deal with coveting. Now, I want to tell you that uh, more frequently than I'd like to admit, I have an embarrassing experience as a preacher. And the embarrassing experience is that I'm studying for a sermon and I finally realize something about a passage of the Bible. What's embarrassing is that it's not like this incredible insight with like this inner Jedi knowledge that almost no one's ever possessed to see. What's embarrassing is when you realize what it has always said in black and white. It has been there 
all along in black and white. I have a hero who was a German New Testament scholar, and anything else beyond that would bore you to tears, but he, he said that it is the number one task of the theologian or the biblical student to see what is there. What hit me this week that I have, I have read it out loud, I have read it silently to myself, and it never dawned on me what Jesus said in that other passage we read from Luke. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story about coveting because I want you to avoid all coveting. He says, there's a guy. You can already tell he's going to be, in a sense, the bad guy, the, you know, the negative example in the parable. And what does the guy do? He's very successful in his farming, a lot of crops, built wealth, so much so he doesn't have room to store it. He builds big, bigger units of storage to hold all the grain and crops and everything. And then he goes home, and what does he say to himself? And this is what unnerved me, because it's always been there. He said to himself, you have ample goods. Enjoy them. And what made my (laughs) jaw drop is that I think that's how I define contentment. That to be content is to say, I I don't just have enough, I have more than enough. And I need, I need to enjoy what God has given me. That's exactly what he was doing. What does the word ample mean? I don't just have enough. I have more than enough. Now enjoy it. And it is to that man that God comes and says, Fool! That is very unnerving. Because on the one hand, the Bible does say, Be content with what you have. The Bible would show show us that we do have more than we need. But is just knowing that, will that really go to the heart of coveting? And apparently, the answer is no. And then what is the indictment that God gives to the man in the parable? God comes to that man and says this, or at least Jesus wrapping it up says this. You have all these things, and you are not rich toward God. What does that mean? When you think about when when a man and a woman fall in love, and whether it's on the front end where they're just, you know, um, so taken with each other, or whether it's years and years and years and years maybe into being married to each other, that you'll hear a couple say, we have something very special. And what they're saying is, we have something that is rich that we're rich toward one another. And if we lose jobs, lose possessions, let's say we lose a child, we're rich. And God is saying, you know what? You can have, you can say, I've got more than enough. In fact, I've downsized. I I have scaled down and it's just right. I like it. I just want to sit and eat and drink and be merry If you have that, but what transpires between us and God is not where we could say, we have something special. Then the indictment is that we are fools. What is the wanting that's up underneath coveting? 
What is it? I, I want to read you a passage. This is, this is from the Old Testament. It's from the prophet Jeremiah. And God talks to the universe. Talks to all the constellations and the stars and says, Listen to this. Listen to what my people have done. They've done two things. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people, now again, not the Assyrians or the Philistines or the Babylonians, listen to what my people have done. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you understand what God is saying? He says, listen to this galaxies that I made. Listen to this nebula. These are my people. They are not my enemies, but listen to what they've done. They know that I, I can give them the water that will satisfy. But they've rejected me first. And then they did something else. They went out and dug other wells that will not hold water and will not satisfy them. And we could even say in light of this command, and now they're even looking at one another's wells saying, what will I do about my thirst? Be appalled, universe, at what my people have done. Why is this even feasible? Why would people who know that God can give you the water that will make the thirst go away, why would we reject Him and His water and try to dig our own wells? And it's actually what we said when we talked about the first commandment. God made an amazing earth. It's amazing. And He filled it with amazing people. You are amazing. The more I know you, I'm struck that you are amazing. And the world's full of amazing things. Uh, my, my very dear friend, I was talking to him on the phone this week, and he had been at a birthday dinner for his brother. And uh, I won't get into all the circumstances, but through an unusual set of circumstances, there was a bottle of wine there that one of the guests, and this had been given to the host, one of the guests said, I can't believe you have this. This is worth at least $400. Easily. And my friend said, so we got to taste this wine. Now, these are his words. He said, when I tasted this wine, he said, hey, big, here's the two things I realized. Number one, I've been an idiot because I have thought it is stupid for anybody to spend like more than $12 on a bottle of wine. And I've made fun of people that are frou-frou and really get into this, that stuff. I took one sip of that and realized that they may be geniuses. It was like a little cordial had been brought from the new earth <laughs> into the old earth. He said, it was unbelievable. So, so the first thing is, okay, I'm an idiot. And the second thing was, I can see why some people would just throw themselves headlong into this world of fine wines. Because if you, you know, it's, it's almost like a drug. If you have experienced this all you would want is to feel that again. 
So the person who's willing to spend 500 or 1,000 or 10,000, it, it makes sense to me now. And, and guys, it's that way with almost any facet of God's amazing earth that possessions, things, fine books, instruments, popular culture, being in love, sexuality, architecture, great writing, work, production, entrepreneurial endeavors, achievement, technology. It is amazing. But if we try to get any of that to make the thirst that God put in our hearts go away, it won't work. And the thing is, even as we're hearing that together, you can say, I know that. I know it won't work. But there's a way to know and not know. There is a way to know and not live out of what you know. Like last Christmas, did you know that it is our tendency to get way too preoccupied with the details and trying to make all the rounds and do all the stuff and the decoration and get gifts done? And did you tell yourself, this year I'm going to be on top of it I'm going to knock out the stuff I need to do, and I'm going to enjoy Advent. Did you tell yourself that last year? Did you know that last year? How did it go last year? Chickens, headless, running. You know, are there people that know that today will be a nightmare in the airports? Nightmare. And what has the news been dominated with? TSA and searches and enhanced pat-downs and massive crowds and all that. Will everybody get their way early? No. No. Some people will be crazy and will try to get there when they normally would get there. Did they know? Yes. Did they know? No. Did we know how, do we know how Christmas will go this year? Yes. Do we? Probably not. Do you know that only God can satisfy to make the deep wanting go away? Yes, I do. Do we? Do we? Then why are we so frenetic? And why are we looking at our own neighbor and saying, I don't understand why God would work it where their parents had means, and so they land in a bed of roses, and everything has to be hard for us. Why did they get the affluent parents and we didn't? Why in this room are we comparing ourselves to one another? It is because we do not know what we claim to know. And here's the love of God. God, who says to the universe, do you see what they're doing? He could have looked at us and said, well, you know what? I let you see that I have the water, and I let you see that I freely offered it to you, but you spurned my love, and you rejected it. So be thirsty and die from it, because it is richly deserved. I've given you everything. I didn't have to offer you drink in the first place. Die of your deserved thirst. And the love of God is that He looked at thirsty people 
and said, what you, this is your need. You need my son. His greatest treasure. And he sends his son. And his son, in the flesh, stands in, in the city that rejected him. It was supposed to be ground zero of his love and became ground zero of rebellion. He stands in that city and knows the hearts of everybody he's talking to and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Won't drive him away. And you will be satisfied. Now, if you're thinking, okay, but if that's true, then why do any Christians covet? If he says, yeah, your thirst will be satisfied, then why, why does anyone who believes in Jesus covet? A few weeks ago, I was sitting in a chair in our living room, and I thought about this, piece of, this piano piece of music, and I thought, it was kind of a Christmassy piece. It was an arrangement by George Winston. And I thought, I think I want to buy the sheet music for that. And I got on the computer and started looking around. And it just kind of seemed like it was going to be complicated. And I thought, I'm just not even going to mess with it. I wish I had that. And then a few days later, it hit me that I have a songbook in our piano bench that might have that piece of music. And so days later, I go over to that songbook and I look and the song is in there. Now, what could be more ridiculous than the spectacle of a man sitting in a chair going, I wish I could have something, but I can't, and it's eight feet away from him. And you know what? Sadly, there's an answer to that question of what could be more ridiculous. And it's what I did day before yesterday. Day before yesterday, Black Friday. You know, Friday, you try to get some work done, but it's kind of a big, you know, like, if you just sort of do anything, it's you're in the plus range. And uh, so... <laughs> doing some work and running some errands and I had to go to the bank Friday. And so I had like three paper things I had to take to the bank. So I'm trying to get out the door and trying to make sure I've got all my stuff. And I'm about to walk out and I thought, I need my cell phone. And I'm walking around and I'm looking for my cell phone. You know, I'm like, okay, I've got you know, keys and wallet and papers and everything. Where's my cell phone? I said, Dana, where's my cell phone? And you, you feel that irritation growing like, why are cell phones so hard to find? Why does everything have to be complicated all the time? So I get on the home phone, I call my cell phone, and the ring is so close that I feel like it's in my clothes. I'm holding it. It's under the paper. It's touching my skin. Where is my cell phone? I need my cell phone. Oh, I have my cell phone. It, okay, now we're, it's crazy to live as if you don't have what you already have. And the thing about being a sinner is you can live as if you don't have what you actually have. A husband and wife have utter one, oneness. They can live out of that have a good marriage, or they can live as if they're actually two and shred the oneness. They actually are one, but they can live as if that's not true if they want to. If we want to, if we're in Christ, we can live as if we're not, we're not full. We can live as if I am still thirsty. Or we can live out of what God has already done.
and not live out of a posture of need. What would it look like if that grabbed our hearts? That God gave His riches. I will never lose them. I have His love and acceptance and protection in me, around me, on me. My sins are taken away. I don't have to justify myself to a world with my stuff or my possessions or my spouse or whatever. What would it look like if that grabbed us? I can't think of a better way than to quote Jesus to answer that question and we'll be finished. What does it look like for finally the wanting up underneath the covenant to be dealt with in the gospel and to live out of that? That rather than look at your neighbor saying, you have what I want, it would be to look at your neighbor and say to your neighbor what God said to us, what do you need? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we ask that this morning, if we are poor toward You, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear riches through knowing and trusting Jesus. We pray that if we have those riches, that we will know that and live out of that and not dig our own wells, but drink from Yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.